Sydney Environment Institute presents the Environmental Justice 2017 Conference Keynote Conversation 5, Multi-Species Justice, with Chair David Pello and speakers Michelle Maloney and Dinesh Waterwell. Welcome again, everybody, to uh, day two of the Environmental Justice 2017 Conference. I'm sure that you will agree with me that yesterday's sessions were outstanding, stimulating, and invigorating uh, on so many levels. Uh, from the, the morning session to the afternoon to the evening. This morning's keynote is on multi-species justice, which is a concept that I'm quite sure you won't find listed on the agenda of most environmental justice gatherings, certainly that I've been to. Um, and yet, there was, there was a session in 1997 uh, on, this, on this very topic. So I, I think that's um, another indication of the far-reaching and ambitious thinking, planning, and vision on the part of, of the conference organizers because we must indeed question the socially constructed and I would argue unnecessarily restrictive boundaries and the limits of the human and the unearned and disastrous consequences of political, economic, and legal systems that reinforce the idea that justice is somehow for just us humans. So this morning we have two wonderful speakers who are renowned for their expertise on these matters. I'll introduce them both now and they'll present for roughly 10 minutes each and uh, then we'll follow up with uh, Q&A and discussion. Dinesh Wadiwal is a lecturer in human rights and socio-legal studies here at University of Sydney. He is the author of a number of books uh, on human animal studies and politics including The War Against Animals. Uh, the forthcoming book, Foucault and Animals. He's also the convener of the University of Sydney Human Animal Research Network and collaborates with a number of multicultural organizations working toward rights for migrants with, and refugees with disabilities. Michelle Maloney has 25 years experience designing and managing climate change, sustainability, and environmental justice projects in Australia, the UK, and the US as co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. She manages the strategic direction and governance of that organization, including the extensive partnerships and networks they have with legal, academic, and environmental advocacy groups. She also designs and manages the organization's programs and events, including the Rights of Nature Tribunals, which I would love to, to witness. So we are definitely in for a treat this morning. So let us go ahead and begin with Dinesh Wadiwal. Thanks so much, David. Um, could I start by acknowledging the traditional owners upon the land that we're upon? Um, and my thanks to SEI for just a really fantastic conference. Paul Crutzen is known for having popularised the concept of the Anthropocene, and something we've heard lots at this conference, to capture the impact of humans on the Earth's systems measured in geological time. Crutzen's diagnosis included a sobering list of effects that included anthropogenic climate change, mass human utilisation of fresh water supplies, and large-scale forest destruction. Importantly, in Crutzen's formulation, animals are also directly impacted by this planetary-scale effect. Indeed, animals are named explicitly in at least three ways. Firstly, mass species extinction. The sixth great extinction event is closely tied to human activity. Indeed, insofar as it is anthropogenic in origin, we are dealing with at least an indirect form of planetary-scale human violence directed against non-humans. Secondly, the massive expansion of global livestock populations, and with them, 
deforestation and expanding land use and unprecedented utilisations of energy, resources and food to maintain this commodity supply. Finally, Crutzen specifically notes the rise of industrialised fishing, and it's something I'll come back to in a moment, and with it, the decimation of our oceans. The crisis ahead is that the depletion of fish stocks may have reached an irreversible stage, where, as some have predicted, the oceans could run out of key fish species by 2050. Crutzen and his colleagues, in defining the Anthropocene, have created a peculiar challenge for thinking about justice and particularly justice as it applies to animals. This justice project necessarily looks different from many of the justice projects that have emerged from traditional political philosophy, which have largely been concerned with just institutions and just procedures that produce just outcomes for humans. Instead, the challenge is how we might imagine justice after anthropocentrism. That is, can we imagine justice without simply reinstating human domination in a different form. And importantly, justice in a multi-species context forces us to ask difficult questions um, about what is just for non-humans. What, for example, do animals want from us when it comes to justice? In my own work, I've been particularly interested in the violence of human domination of human sovereignty as an artifact of our own anthropocentrism. In my 2015 book, The War Against Animals, I was interested in pursuing precisely this systematic set of relationships we have with non-human animals. My argument in the book was that taking a global perspective, our mainstay relations with animals are essentially a relation of continued and unrelenting hostility. If we just take food consumption for an example, one conservative, conservative estimate is that worldwide over 70 billion land animals are killed annually for food. Estimates of fish killed annually for human consumption range up to 2.7 trillion per year. Certainly taking this grim picture into account, it seems reasonable to suggest that if this mass scale injury and death are systematic and directed, then perhaps they conform to an understanding in political terms of what might be described as a war. This war produces effects that are not preferred or desired by animals themselves. In a political sense, the violence we expose animals to means, to paraphrase Iris Marion Young, that the lives of animals are determined without reciprocation from animals themselves. Put this way, justice in this context has to involve some determined effort to reduce human violence towards animals. That book of mine belongs to an emerging field that has been identified as belonging to the political turn in animal ethics and rights. This new field of pro-animal theory is less concerned with questions of individual ethics, such as what should I personally eat or what should I personally wear, and more interested in how we address institutions, violence, policy and law to generate just outcomes for animals. Some of this work is directed specifically at democracy and political institution. For example, thinkers such as Robert Garner, who was here in Sydney last week, and Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicker have recently been making arguments for the formal inclusion of animals in animal interests in democracies, that is to design democracies in ways that are non-anthropocentric. And I'd say most of these theorists have drawn a leaf from green theory in designing these models. But other work within the political turn is interested in strategic problems relating to how we move forward a political agenda for animals, and specifically how we work with other social movements to make change. 
One example of this is the work of Claire Jean Kim, who explores the intersection of animals, race and environment in different social movement actions. With this in mind, I'm curious if a multi-species justice platform allows us to build better alliances between animal advocates and environmental justice movements. Since I wrote The War Against Animals, I've embarked on a different project, exploring the way in which capitalism might interact with this particular form of systematic conflict I've been describing. To me, understanding the specific relationship between anthropocentrism and capitalism is vital for comprehending a range of global problems that confront us and based on the conversations that happened yesterday here at this conference, I'm not alone in wondering this. In my view, environmental justice, almost more specifically a multi-species environmental justice, has to be part of the solution. To explore this relation, I would like to return to thinking about industrialised fishing, which I mentioned, as I mentioned, is central to the problem of the Anthropocene. It's no secret that during the 20th century it was the industrialisation of wild fish capture which helped generate the crisis we face in the oceans today. From about the 1950s onwards, industrialised fish capture came to dominate all global fish capture as local small-scale subsistence and artisanal fishing faced challenges from increasingly well-organised businesses who captured, large, you know, captured fish on a large scale. The goal for these international interests is capturing animals who will become commodities for big business. Fish are perhaps the most wide, widely, widely traded global food commodities in the world and remain a source of intense interest for global markets. We know that particularly in the Asia Pacific, while fish capture industries are quite ruthless and are associated with the use of low wages or forced labour on boats or in processing operations that many fish caught by forced labourers end up on the dinner tables of consumers in the global north tells us something that is both sobering and also a recurring theme, a recurring theme of contemporary capitalist supply chains. At least one disturbing aspect of this global business is the large number of fish that are discarded as part of the fishing industry. Discards mean that fish, the fish that are thrown back into the ocean after they have been hunted down and killed, often because they are too small for market, belong to a non-marketable species or because, because, because a more profitable species is subsequently caught by the fishing vessel, forcing a financial decision to dump the less profitable haul. Discarded fish make up a staggering proportion of global fish capture. In May 2016, a team of, a team of researchers at the University of Auckland suggested that discarded fish accounted for some 34.7% of fish caught in New Zealand waters, which is just astonishing to me. All of this is not merely a disaster for humans and the environment, but also a disaster for animals. Almost no wild fish capture involves welfare precautions to prevent fish suffering. Fish are hauled from depths, crushed against fish and nets, frequently expire painfully from burst swim bladders, and those that survive this ordeal are left to suffocate on boats. Growing research on fish sentience and capability highlights that these fish almost certainly feel pain and experience emotions that are comparable to land-based animals. If justice requires us to consider the views of all those who experience injustice, and I would say this is crucial to the environmental justice frame, then what about fish? Are they not delivered a massive injustice in the multifaceted disaster that is industrialised fishing? Indeed, would a non-anthropocentric conception of justice acknowledge that, that fish have the, have the most at stake 
in any deliberation over the justice of fishing itself? And what does this just solution look like? The example of industrialised fish capture intrigues me because it perfectly illustrates the deep intersections between economic inequality under capitalism and the manifold effects of the, this poses for humans, animals and nature. Yet I find it strange that we have not seen the kind of alliances that might bring these elements together for strategic change. While environment and labour rights groups have been working together admirably in the Asia-Pacific region to address slavery in the industry, it's curious to me that very few of these groups specifically raise the problems this in industry poses for fish beyond questions of the sustainability of fishing and for fish populations. On the flip side, I'm curious why animal protection organisations have not worked in solidarity with others to support, support attempts to end slavery in the industry um, as part of the general movement to challenge industrialised wild fish, fish capture itself. But from my perspective, the opportunity is there to seek to address injustices that face both humans and non-humans. I certainly think this is an opportunity offered by multi-species justice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dinesh. Very, very, very provocative. I love uh, the idea, the, 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 the claim that uh, if we are indeed focused on justice, then if we are to focus on injustice that is being experienced by all beings, then why not fish and why stop there? And to pay attention to those deep entanglements uh, between and among humans and, and non-humans. Um, why, why stop arbitrarily at, at, the, at the boundaries of the human? And I appreciate the, the reference to Claire Jean Kim's work. I'm assigning that in a class right now. So let's move on to our second presenter, Michelle Maloney. Thank you very much. Thank you to the organisers for inviting me to participate. Um, thank you to Dinesh for that wonderful talk. Um, and I'm also acknowledging and extremely grateful to the traditional custodians of the land of Australia who've cared for our beautiful continent for millennia. Um, I was really pleased when I was invited to speak about multi-species justice. It's not a frame that we've used in the work that we do. Um, but as a response, I guess what I'd like to talk about um, is the work that Thomas Berry and Earth Jurisprudence has inspired around Earth-centred governance and Earth-centred ethics. And there's obviously um, a whole range of pieces of work that a number of us are doing around the world that connects to this work. Um, but in terms of the, the kind of the core questions, you know, how can we understand the ecological crisis and respond to ecological destruction? And how can we achieve multi-species justice? I guess my presentation is both a mix of the professional theoretical work that we're doing and, and a personal response as a lawyer. So the Australian Earth Laws Alliance was created in 2012 by a handful of what I would call very disgruntled environmental lawyers who could see the role of our own profession um, in the destruction of, of the Earth system. Our mission is to promote the theoretical understanding but also the practical implementation of earth-centred law, governance and ethics. We're a very small not-for-profit with very few financial resources but a growing network of thousands of people connecting in both in Australia and around the world. So what I'd like to talk about is the theoretical framework that we have sort of been inspired by and then the practical work that we're doing in response which to me on a daily basis the inspiration is multi-species justice. 
So a lot of our focus is into civil society. Um, we think of ourselves as a bridge between some really cool ideas out there in the universe, but how do we actually make that happen? And in the current political climate, both in Australia, the US, and many other places, where leadership is not coming from the top, how do we um, work with all the amazing, energetic, innovative folks um, in civil society? And so a lot of our talks about Earth jurisprudence start with how the heck do we understand this big, messy ecological crisis? And at a moral level, how can we properly comprehend and respond to this devastation that we have wrought upon the planet? I mean, how can we face what our species has done to every other species on the planet? And the planetary boundaries um, model is just one other way of capturing um, that we've blown out our destruction of one particular important boundary to life, which is all of the interconnectedness of the eco ecological life around us. I won't talk to this slide too much, but you know, when we're thinking about how we respond and what are the frameworks that make sense to us, you also have to analyse where we came from. A lot of people harp on about neoliberalism, but if you look back through history of what humans and particularly European societies have been doing to the planet, um, the, the disconnect between humanity and its obligations to the rest of the natural world started a very long time ago. Derek Jensen suggests you know, agricultural society was the beginning of deforestation and destruction. European colonisation and the colonial project continues today. So there's all of these issues, and that little ball of concrete is very complex. I want to quickly jump through the, the points of inspiration, I guess, for our work and for Ayla. Thomas Berry, if you haven't heard of him, um, started life as a Catholic priest, but was a deep ecologist, and he called himself an earth geologian. He has quite a phenomenal legacy around the world, inspiring people through eco-spirituality and what you might think as, as deep ecology. But in his latter years, he actually turned his wonderful analysis of kind of a new story or a new cosmology for humanity, and he linked it to a critique of, of governance systems. So two books that I'd like to speak to because they're still such a profound influence for me. The Universe Story. Um, he worked with the wonderful mathema mathematical cosmologist Brian Swim for 10 years to put together The Universe Story. And it proposes that a deep understanding of the origins and the ongoing evolution of the universe and the planet should actually be both an inspiration and a guide for how we live and how we are. And the universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. And it's actually a really important base point to not just remember the now, but to really think about you know, what we understand at the moment in time about where we came from. And then to flick into a fairly practical analysis of some of the problems, this is the book that I found both um, poetic and beautiful and disturbing because he gives a really good systemic analysis of these underpinning structures of industrial society, law and government, economics, universities and education generally, and the role of religion. And when he looks at all of them, he points to, from the Western um, disciplines, I suppose, this anthropocentrism, this absolute belief that everything is for us, that the rest of the, the world is out there for a as a commodity for our use. So Earth jurisprudence is very interested in looking beneath what's going on and connecting up at a systemic level um, what some would say the core is this anthropocentric belief and others would say combined with this sort of pro-growth obsession in the 20th century. So what has this got to do with multi-species justice? Earth jurisprudence calls for us to shift from human-centred to Earth-centred governance to truly believe that the image on the right is how it is and how it should be. We are, biologically speaking, no more entitled to use this planet than a cockroach. Um, we may have fallen into you know, opposable thumbs and tripped over some kind of sentience, but it doesn't give us the right to destroy everything else. And more importantly, 
we really need to both return to some kind of reverence for the natural world and, and the world that we are deeply connected to. I might just skip to that one. Um, just very quickly, so what is Earth jurisprudence about? Jurisprudence is just a big flash word that a lot of people use in law, um, you know, the theory of law. But what we're very interested in is the broader governance. We're lawyers, but we're interested in the whole kit. Um, and there are five core points here that in the current system we have human laws are the highest authority, seems to be natural. Nature is a commodity for human use. Our legal systems show us this through property laws and others. Very interestingly, we have social constructs that create um, the rights for entities that are as fictional as a unicorn, a corporation. We have created these magical constructs to give certain entities of human beings phenomenal power. And we also have a system, in any direction you look at it, any critique you take, uh, with a pro-growth um, economic and political ideology. The flip side to that is Earth jurisprudence and the work that Thomas Berry and many other deep ecologists that I don't have time to talk about, but many have looked at this essence of humans are not the highest form of law. Um, the great law or the laws of the natural world are really the, the parameters within which everything should work. And we have no right to be treating the rest of the world as a commodity. It's really this idea of a community of subjects. And the rights of nature is something that's been bubbling up now for about 10 years, and this year's been a bit of a zeitgeist. There are mechanisms and laws and policies and groups popping up all around the place, and for someone who's been working on it for about six years, it's really exciting to see that happen. But within Earth jurisprudence, there's this argument that all of the life that we have co-evolved with has a right to be here, it has a right to exist, to regenerate, to flourish, and to continue its evolutionary path. And by cutting off life today, we're not just destroying what we have, we're destroying our future into what, what could happen and what could be. So Earth jurisprudence is very much about looking at a system that can return to some level of what First Nations people have never lost, which is an idea of reverence and respect for the Earth-centeredness of our life. But the tricky task is trying to retrofit that onto a highly destructive, moving towards um, you know, two degrees, three degrees climate change. How on earth do we do that? Um, with the time remaining, just very quickly wanted to touch on, um, sorry, two minutes? Great, that's fine. Um, I really just wanted to touch on some of the work that the Australian Earth Laws Alliance is doing as almost a, a living and breathing uh, embodiment of trying to shift a system for multi-species justice. We have five core themes of work. Um, we look at changing culture, reconnecting law and governance to what, what matters, building community that reflects our civil society focus, creating alternatives, which I'll talk a bit about, and then transforming law and, and structure. And you'll see that although most of us are lawyers, and then the network now is very multidisciplinary, only one of the five core areas of work actually focuses on law. We're very interested in the social and cultural bedrock that needs to shift to support a very different kind of systemic um, change. Now, that is the chaos that represents what we do on a daily basis within AILA, and it's lots of fun. Um, but I'll jump to this slide, which is far more organised. We work on education, both at the university and now next year we're going into high schools. We've got a, a, quite a remarkable arts community that is flourishing around Ayla, and now we've got a permanent arts community called the Earth Arts Collective, which I can talk about, and they connect to our Rights of Nature tribunals. Um, we have an Earth Ethics Conference that I'll very briefly plug, 23rd to the 24th of November in Brisbane. There's still space. Come and register. We can't look at multi-species justice or shifting to an Earth-centred system without tackling the, the economic system and the interwovenness of economics and politics. So 
Um, as of about a year ago, a whole bunch of us have started this New Economy Network Australia, which is a really exciting space where we're bringing together hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people across food, energy, transport, housing, cooperatives, different kinds of commoning, a whole bunch of ways to not just fight off what we don't want to see happen, but really focus on joining up the dots and systemically building a different economic and political system that supports human innovation in a way that's focused on Earth-centeredness. So that's exciting. Um, the Australian Centre for the Rights of Nature is involved with stuff around the world and we're running and exploring the legal status of nature symposium. We actually have a workshop on Thursday afternoon this week here in Sydney with Justice Preston from the New South Wales Land and Environment Court. Um, and the People's Tribunal for the Rights of Nature and green prints. Now, I'll just my final slide. So the rights of nature, which you know I could talk about for three days endlessly, but very briefly, it's a growing movement. And at its essence, it's really just trying to push back at positivist Western legal systems that treat the natural world as property. And around this work is just a, a, quite a phenomenon of exciting work that lawyers are trying to grapple with the ticky-tacky details of how it might work. But communities love it because it's a spearhead. It's a way of actually challenging people to see that the system right now is fundamentally geared towards destroying the natural world. We can't just peck away at certain pieces of law reform. That is important, but we must also look at shifting the system so that the overall governance looks at an Earth-centred way of being, returns to some level of respect for the rest of the natural world, and hopefully has a better system for um, putting together and enforcing multi-species justice. So that's about it from me. That's me. Thank you very much for your time.